You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. John M. Sweeney is an award-winning author of more than 40 books, among them The Pope Who Quit, which was optioned by HBO. His other works include the new biography Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Catechist, Saint, The Complete Francis of Assisi, Inventing Hell, Thomas Merton, An Introduction to His Life and Practices, and the Pope's Cat series of books for children. Sweeney recently edited and presented two collections of the lectures of Thomas Merton, including A Course in Christian Mysticism and his co-authored volumes of Meister Eckhart poems, including Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart. Sweeney is also co-founder of a multi-faith publishing house, Skylight Paths Publishing in Vermont. Today, he is the publisher at Paraclete Press in Massachusetts. He speaks regularly at literary and religious conferences. He is a Catholic married to a rabbi, and their interfaith marriage has been profiled in national media. He is active on social media and frequently interviewed by the press, and we are honored to have him here today. In today's episode of Messy Jesus Business, John Sweeney and I discuss his journey from evangelical Christianity and the Moody Bible Institute to writing about saints, becoming Catholic, and becoming a rabbi spouse. We also explore his thoughts on what Christians need to know and respect about Judaism. We talk about his book, Jesus Wasn't Killed by the Jews, and how the story of St. Francis of Assisi and Franciscanism influences him. And we also discuss Nicholas Black Elk and John's new book about him. Enjoy. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business, John. Thanks. Let's just jump right into your story. I'm thinking about who you are right now. You're a person who is just publishing. It's about to come out, the book um, Nicholas Black Elk. Congratulations. You're a person who supports a lot of writers, uh, works in publishing, And you're also married to a rabbi. And so you have kind of this great mix of uh, spiritualities and um, searching. So how how did you become this person? (laughs) Boy, that's a big question. I know, Uh, right? That's kind of the fun of it. (laughs) You'd have to ask my therapist, although I don't have one. Uh, how did I become this person? Oh my goodness. Uh, I, I don't know. Let me, let me try and answer that in like a two minute version. And then you can tell me what you want me to say more about. So I, uh, I grew up, or maybe this will be a four minute version. I grew up uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, the you know headquarters of evangelicalism. 
I grew up in the heart of Christian evangelicalism. I grew up a Christian Protestant evangelical. Um, uh, parents who were very involved in that work and that life, uh, grandparents who were pastors and involved in that work and that life. Um, I went to Moody Bible Institute my first year of college, uh, even though I sort of knew that was not the right thing for me at the time, I still did it because I thought I was being faithful to my tradition. Um, quickly realized it was not the place for me, but I realized it wasn't the place for me when I was a missionary uh, after my first year of school in the Philippines and my job was to convert Catholics and get them to be rebaptized as evangelical Baptists. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's just so hard for me to imagine you doing that now. Hey, oh, okay, you wanna take it one step further to, to imagine <laughs> how hard it is you know, to see me doing this? My job was, because I was young, I was, you know, first year out of college, I was 18, I don't remember how old I was, I was 19 at the old, I started college a little early, so I, I was 19, maybe, mm -hmm. um, but of course, I knew everything, you know, oh. <laughs> I knew everything, I had my study Bible and my Matthew Henry commentary, and I knew everything, uh, anyway, um, to make it even harder to believe, my job that summer was mostly to rally and create a youth group. So I was a youth pastor and, and I asked the kids what they wanted to do and what they wanted to do was a drama musical. And so I, I, I pretended like I knew what I was doing and I was the director, like the producer director of, a, of Joseph and the Multicolored Dreamcoat. Wow. in Batangas City, uh, in the province of Batangas in the Philippines. And you know what? It was fabulous. The kids were amazing. <laughs> but can you picture me doing that? No, so, so, anyway, so it, but it, it was that summer that um, I have said this before, that um, I really fell in love with Catholicism. I hmm. grew up in an environment that um, I used to make fun of Catholic kids on the school bus for crossing themselves and for uh, various other things. Um, and I thought that they were going to hell. But it was the summer that I was in the Philippines doing that work that I sort of fell in love very quietly with Catholicism. At the same time, I was reading a lot of Thomas Merton, mm -hmm. uh, who I came to through his peace and justice writings, his nonviolent writings, because when I had to register for selective service at the age of 18, I didn't know where to turn. I thought there was something wrong with going to war and killing people. I talked to my pastor, my evangelical pastor, and he was of no use or support to me at all. So I found the Lombard Mennonite uh, folks in Western suburbs of Chicago, uh, and they were a huge support to me, and they put into my hand uh, Thomas Merton's nonviolent writings. And so anyway, all of this was percolating and going on inside of me. So then anyway, very quickly moving forward, um, I went to Wheaton College, um, which is still an evangelical school, but one that's a lot more rigorous and I got to learn a lot and had some great professors and um, met some really cool people, um, don't have any regrets about having gone to Wheaton College. And I then was an Episcopalian for about 20 years, a very involved one such that I lived in Vermont most of the time. And um, I was on the Bishop's Discernment Committee to help uh, determine who should become a priest and who should be a deacon and stuff. So, I mean, I was really involved, but Catholicism was still sort of knocking on my heart mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons that we wouldn't have time to go into today. It, I did not become a Catholic finally 
on the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi in 2009 because I thought it was the one true mm. anything. Yeah. Um, it was a whole lot, whole lot more complicated than that for me, not, you know, not because I thought everything I had done before was somehow wrong and now I'm somehow right. Mm. Um, but I've been a Catholic since 2009. And I was writing books long before that on Catholic subjects. So for a long time, my sort of shtick was that I'm a Protestant who's in love with Catholic imagination, sort of Andrew Greeley, mm. who I was a great fan of. And then I became a Catholic who was in love with Catholic imagination. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, all of that, uh, I'll then just quickly say I was married for about 20 years, um, married uh, immediately out of college. I was only 21 years old. I don't think we knew really what we were doing. I don't think we were particularly well suited, but we had two wonderful children, raised two great kids. I have two adult kids in their late 20s, um, but I ended up getting divorced and then remarried 11 years ago, um, a rabbi. <laughs> and it wasn't entirely bizarre for me to date and then marry a rabbi because as you said, I work in publishing and I have worked in publishing ever since, uh, basically ever since I got out of college. So for 30 years, I've worked in publishing and seven of those years, I was a vice president at Jewish Lights Publishing in Vermont. Um, which was a little weird for them to have a, uh, a, a Christian who was the head of marketing at a Jewish publisher, but yet anyone who remembers the 90s and remembers Jewish Lights Publishing because they had a pretty, pretty wide and great reputation, uh, our purpose was to bring Jewish spirituality to the Christian world and to show how they can talk to each other. So that was my job. So anyway, I had gotten to know lots of Jewish folks. I had lots of rabbis who were friends and educators and so on. So then when this new rabbi moved to my town in Vermont and I thought she was kind of cool and maybe she'd want to have a cup of coffee, um, I still had some friends who thought that was a little bizarre that I was starting to sort of date a rabbi, but I didn't think it was weird at all. Mm -hmm. Actually didn't realize that it was that recent that you had converted to Catholic. I think that... Um, I've had a Catholic heart my whole life. I think mm. you know, my great, great grandparents came from Italy and mm. Ireland and they were Catholics, you know? So, yeah, yeah. And then they moved to the middle of this country and they became evangelical Protestants because that was the way to, you know, get along. Mm. So I think there's this way in which I think I came back home really mm. being a Catholic. And um, I also sort of came back home because as I said, I was writing, I mean, I was writing books on Francis and Claire and, yeah. um, and the saints, I wrote a book called The Lure of Saints. Uh, and I wrote a book on Mary. And I mean, I was writing on all these Catholic subjects. I was uh, neck deep in stuff. So the, when I finally became a Catholic, it's because I was in Rome and Naples um, on a little sort of fun research tour for a book I ended up writing called The Pope Who Quit about Celestine V. And I was with a friend of mine from England, uh, a journalist and publisher friend who was my best friend at the time and still is one of my best friends. I just never see him anymore. And um, we're standing in St. Peter's Square after having been together for 10 days, traveling around Italy. And I don't remember why, but he finally says to me, why don't you just become a Catholic already? I mean, what, what what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, I was getting that divorce that I mentioned, the uh -huh. divorce getting was finalized right then. And I thought to myself, suddenly, I have no more excuses. I mean, like, that was my last excuse was, 
I couldn't do that. It would mess up my marriage and my home and it would be, you know, uh -huh. but I didn't have an excuse anymore. And so I remember looking at him saying, you know what? I have no idea. I really just should do it. And, and uh -huh. I went home and met with my local priest and we met together for about six months and then he let me pick the day and I and it was a Sunday in 2009 and so it was Francis of Assisi's Saint uh, feast day so awesome yeah and I know you as a guy who just like you said you you wrote books on the saints but in uh Saint Francis especially I know you as a as a you know an informal Franciscan <laughs> someone who's really living out Franciscan values and we've talked about that in the past about why you're you haven't officially become a third order Franciscan or something, but what is it about the Franciscan spirituality that kind of feeds into this, the spiritual searching and this, you know, interfaith, really ecumenical way of relating that, that makes up you? St. Francis's commitment to interfaith conversation and understanding, um, I have always found um, so appealing. His uh, authentic witness, his... Um, actions before words. Um, th there are ways in which um, I feel sometimes, to be honest, I feel sometimes I'm so passionate about Franciscan themes and the life of St. Francis because it's a corrective to, uh, to for me, um, a, a reminder and a corrective for me all the time. And I'll give an example. What I mean by that is I so admire the way in which he uh, advised uh, his uh, fellow friars to avoid too much book study, too many books and owning books and things like that. And people who know me personally or even sort of my public uh, persona know that there's like nothing that nothing else that I ever talk about other than my cats and my books and my family. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I know it shouldn't mean so much to me. So it's like, I, it's like I need to keep St. Francis really close to remind me that it's the heart that matters. And it's not, it's not the stuff that I read on a page that matters and that the mm. two are not necessarily related. But I mean, there's also just so many other aspects. I love the holy foolishness of Francis, which I try to, I try to apply to my life sometimes. Um, I love the poverty of Francis. I mean, even though I have a mortgage and a house uh, I resisted having either of them for a long time because I was trying to live by Franciscan ideals. And I still do. It's just that poverty means different things to different people at different stages of life. So anyway, there's the, we, we could talk about that for the whole half hour or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love the themes of, of Francis and of Claire as well. Yeah, yeah. And your love of books and studies makes me think that there's just a big part of you that's Dominican, actually. <laughs> no, no, don't say that. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't help it. Because <laughs> one of the things I also love about Francis, you know, Francis and, and Dominic, of course, were contemporaries. And one of the things I always love, too, is to, rem is to remember and to remind people about how Dominic was always on the road to Rome you know, going mm. and meeting with the Curia and seeking the approval of cardinals and stuff. And I love how Francis just kind of, you know, sometimes you just don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just, you just live the life. You don't necessarily ask. Yeah. So yeah, you're a seeker and you're open to being in relationships and, um, you know, kind of being creative about the different ways you do that. So I'm very interested in what it's like to be married to a rabbi <laughs> as, as, as a person who's really promoting a lot of, of the Christian tradition on a regular basis. 
Well, you know, to be honest, I don't think uh, I, I, there's nothing wrong with you asking that question, but I wouldn't answer a question quite like that. And I'll tell you why, because I don't feel like I'm married to a rabbi, you know, I'm mm-hmm. married to a particular person mm-hmm. uh, who has all sorts of defining characteristics. One of them happens to be that she's a rabbi, but she's also a whole lot of other things that are individual to her. So sure. I, can't, I can't answer what is it like to be married to a rabbi because I've only ever been married to one and she's a very particular person. But I will say that uh, being married to a rabbi uh, has added to what I, you know, I mentioned already why I had this sort of interfaith uh, background and passion. Um, when I was at Jewish Lights Publishing, I also co-founded a publishing house called Skylight Paths Publishing with the founder of Jewish Lights. He and I founded this together. And that was a big part of my life for a long time. I mean, sometimes I think I really miss that specifically. Um, I was uh, deeply involved uh, really, you know, sort of at the forefront, at least in the publishing side of things, on <clears throat> multi-faith conversation, interfaith conversation, not dialogue. I'm not a big fan of that word, dialogue. Mm. I'm much more interested in, and I was much more interested in the way in which spiritual practice uh, crosses over between traditions and how we can learn from each other. Not necessarily how we can blend them all together and then become indistinct. Um, but how we learn from each other and how sometimes we do them side by side, even though we're faithful to our traditions. So, and I'm still very passionate about that. It's just that when I left that particular company that I co-founded, I then went to work in Christian and Catholic publishing specifically, which is most of what I've been doing now for the last almost 20 years. Um, I do get to publish a Jewish book every now and then. Um, I'm always looking a good Jewish book that Christians need to learn from. Mm. And so anyway, to get back to your question, um, being, being married to a rabbi has taught me to be, I'm sure, to be particularly sensitive to ways in which Christians can offend. Mm. And also ways in which Christians need to understand the sometimes anti-Jewish, even anti-Semitic uh, underpinnings of our faith and some of our traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what does what do Christians need to understand about Judaism? Well, what do we need to respect about it so that we aren't offending. Well, since I always turn to books, I'll mention one of them, which is uh, a year ago right now, uh, a book came out that I wrote and edited called Jesus Wasn't Killed by the Jews. Uh, the title is intentionally provocative. It's also intentionally true, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'm just astonished that sometimes there are people who you know, want to sort of take to social media and tell me that I'm wrong. But read the Gospels. Jesus wasn't killed by the Jews. And then um, read commentaries on the Gospels, which is frankly what Catholics are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in my Protestant days, of course, it was more sort of every person and their Bible is all they need, but that's not how Catholics are supposed to read the Bible. So I'm often particularly surprised that Catholics want to argue with me on that particular point. It's often Catholics who come to me and say, yes, but the Gospel of John says this. Are you telling me that's wrong? And my answer usually is, I'm not telling you it's wrong. I'm telling you you need context in order to understand it. And I desperately hope that your pastor or your bishop or someone is going to give you that context. Um, Increasingly, we don't get that context. So anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, that book goes into details about things like um, Ash Wednesday, um, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, um, you know, like on Good Friday when we 
get together and we do the public reading the, from the Gospel of John, and we have, you know, people take different parts and we do it dramatically. And it's the one time a year that we do that in church. And I have friends and, and others who have said to me, I love how we do that because it's so unique. And I say, yeah, I love it too. But that's part of the problem though, is that it's the one time a year we do that. And it also happens to be the one time a year that we have somebody who's designated to be the Jews yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And we don't give it any context. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I would encourage people who are listening to your podcast to look at the context of that because there was an anti-Jewishness that was mm -hmm. going on in the late first century when the Gospel of John was written, and it is a part of the writing and the and the, the tradition of, of that Gospel, and it's not only in the Gospel of John, but there are lots of ways in which we need to be more sensitive to those aspects of our own tradition because mm -hmm. Christianity and Judaism began really at the same time. Mm -hmm. the, the, the biggest mistake that Christians make is to think that Judaism means the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the Old Testament, but Judaism as it exists today, essentially, the last 2000 years of Judaism is a movement that began as a cousin of Christianity, and they began at the same time 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, if Judaism equaled the Old Testament, we would still have animal sacrifice, really. I mean, there would still be priests in Judaism, you know, but the, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, that's not at all what Judaism is today, and it isn't what Judaism has been since the synagogue was born. Uh, so anyway, th th that's a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of things that Christians need to do to be sensitive uh, to their Jewish neighbors, but also just to uncover some of this sort of anti-Jewishness that that is actually in the pages sometimes of our scriptures. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really helpful. And, uh, you know, it reminds me actually of uh, a woman I know who um, converted from an evangelical tradition to Catholic. And then as she was going through the RCA process um, and learning about the Catholic liturgy, the mass and so on, she, she said, wow, Christians, or how did she say this? Catholics are just really um, pray in these ways that remind her of, of, of the tradition of the Bible. And I think she said like, oh, they're kind of, they're kind of like Jews <laughs> or something along those lines. And, you know, those are the sorts of comments that sometimes I, I will admit, I, that feels kind of messy to me. I don't know if I should be offended or defend because I recognize I have so, so much to learn. Yeah. Well, there, there are some ways that I really feel um, a kinship with Jews as a Catholic. And I think and I've also seen this expressed on the Jewish side of the equation. There are ways that I think Jews and Catholics understand each other perhaps better than Jews and Protestants do sometimes. And, and what I mean by that is, um, as you probably know, for many Jewish folks, there's a way of being Jewish that isn't religious. Um, and that's true for a lot of Catholics too. Mm -hmm. There's a way of being Catholic for a lot of people that is not really defined by mass attendance. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes not defined by, I mean, don't tell your priest this, but I mean, sometimes not defined by the life of the sacraments either. I mean, it ought to be, right? But it's not mm -hmm. always, and it's often not. And But there's still a way in which someone who doesn't attend mass anymore, unfortunately, or someone who doesn't have much of a life in the sacraments anymore will often still say, but I am deeply Catholic. You're not taking that away from me. Mm -hmm. And who knows what that means um, for them? It's part of the mystery of faith, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that resonates with Jewish folks pretty easily because a lot of Jewish folks are Jewish and it's not a religious thing. It might not even be a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. You'll meet Jewish atheists. I've met Catholic atheists and certainly mm-hmm. a whole lot of Catholic agnostics. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's a way in which I think Jews and, um, and Catholics understand each other sometimes on those kinds of levels. Um, both, both groups of people often will say, that's just what I do because I'm Catholic, or that's just what I do because I'm Jewish. Like, don't ask me any more about it. That's, it's just what I do. Yeah. 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 I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, it, you know, it says something about bridging the secular and the religious by our identities and how some of those things are not so, you know, contained or defined. And that brings me to Nicholas Black Elk and your recent book coming out about him. So, what what is it about his story that speaks to you and how did you end up writing this book uh you know i think the best answer to that question is i love a great story Mm. um you know i mean you know this you're a writer um as a writer i sometimes look to tell a great story I, i i'd be lying or pretending if i said that i had some uh really close you know intimate uh experience uh, life experience with indigenous people, because I don't. Um, I've been to the places where Black Elk lived a couple of times over the years and been powerfully moved. Um, when I saw that his cause for canonization was beginning, um, I sort of galvanized a casual interest into a really serious one. I mean, that's really my oh. best answer. Mm-hmm. So. So it began by my writing an article with a friend and a colleague who's really the expert on Nicholas Black Elk. His name is Damian Costello uh, for America Magazine. It was a a feature piece for America, uh, oh boy, I don't know, four years ago? I guess that was just about exactly four years ago. And then it turned into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually originally was a book that he and I were going to write together, but then he was so uh, busy as f- vice postulator of the cause itself mm-hmm. uh, and doing lots of other things that he ended up dropping out of the project and I wrote the book by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but anyway, that's, that's how I came to it. And it's, it's, it's an amazing story. I mean, the story of, and part of why I love the story is because there's stuff to debunk and I always like debunking things mm-hmm. because, you know, millions of people um, most of them probably older than, well, older than you, definitely older than you, maybe older than me. Uh, millions of people read Black Elk Speaks in college. I don't know if people still do. I hope people still read Black Elk Speaks in college. But that's one of the things to debunk, uh, which I do in, in my biography of Nicholas Black Elk. Because if you read Black Elk Speaks, which is the best-selling book ever uh, uh, in English, uh, maybe in any language, I mean, because it's been translated into 20 or 30 languages, uh, it's one of the best uh, selling books ever by an, an indigenous uh, uh, person from this continent hmm. is that you wouldn't even know he was a Catholic uh, hmm. for 40 years, for 40 plus years. If you read Black Elk Speaks, you, you think that he was a man who was about to die, who is lamenting the loss of native traditions and ways of life and so on, which he was, but he wasn't about to die. Uh, he lived for about 15 more years after after those interviews took place. Uh, no, more than 15 more years, uh, almost 20 more years. And there's there's really no mention of his of his Catholic faith, which defined the last 40 years of his life, the second half of his life. What was surprising to you about his story? 
as you debunked it? What did you discover? I wouldn't say it's what's surprising. It's all the aspects of the story. It's the episodes of his story. Mm. I mean, he he was, you know, he was born on the Great Plains at a time that was of the, the most stress to his people because of westward expansion and discovery of gold and manifest destiny and the awful colonialist uh, uh, ex experience of, you know, the settling of this country as we know it today. Uh, it was when the reservation system was just getting underway, um, when just at the time when he was born. He was uh, 10 years old at the Battle of Little Bighorn when uh, Custer was, was shot and killed. He actually, Black Elk actually killed a few people that day, scalped mm. them even. Wow. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to being, probably becoming a saint. So, I mean, that's an amazing story. He was also mm. at... Uh, the massacre at Wounded Knee, it wasn't a battle, it was a massacre and he was there. By then he was a very well established uh, holy man, mm -hmm. medicine. So he wasn't carrying weapons, but he was he was a witness to it and he was helping his, his fellow men and women and children who were being slaughtered by the soldiers who were still getting revenge for Custer's death. He joined um, Wild Bill Cody on his Wild West show which is hard to explain both to his indigenous friends as well as to others you know why would he do that why would he essentially become an indian on show you know pay your nickel and watch the indian dance i mean he mm. did that all over this country he did it at madison square garden he, he traveled to europe and england and to europe doing the same he danced for queen victoria i mean he lived an incredible life mm -hmm. uh, and and again None of that is to mention the 40 years that he then spent as a Catholic catechist. Um, part of why he was so good at being a catechist was because he was from a much more ancient culture uh, that included memorization in a way that, mm. uh, you know, Western folks have kind of lost the ability to memorize what we hear and what we read. So he knew vast portions of the scriptures by heart um, and became a very successful and terrific missionary and catechist. Thank you. <laughs> and now, of course, <laughs> let's just encourage all the listeners to buy the book or read it at least, get it from the library. It's a great book. And um, I want to highly recommend it. You're so knowledgeable about saints and religions and faith and uh, spiritual journeys and, <laughs> and all these things. And I'm wondering, in the midst of all this, what discipleship means for you? This might sound trivial, and it shouldn't. But my dog died um, a week ago today. And uh, it's been a really big deal in my life and in the life of our home because he was with us for 12 years. Um, and he was part of our, our life and our love, but also our daily routine. So it's just amazing mm -hmm. how, how, how not only sad it is, but disruptive it is. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but because of that, I've been thinking a lot in the last week um, with, with a fair amount of melancholy about the people who have discipled me and been very important to me, um, both men and women um, who, uh, some of them are now dead, um, passed on, and others uh, are not just not a big part of my life anymore, and sometimes that makes me sad, and um, some a few of them I've thought about are not a part of my life right now in an active way because of the pandemic. 
Um, so, you know, I've had some phone conversations that just do not replace the face-to-face -face conversations that I miss having. So that's, that's what my mind turned to when you said discipleship yeah. is, is those, um, I think of them as, you know, saints sometimes, um, or people who are just on a similar journey to me or people who are, uh, who have in one way or another had such a big impact on me. Um, and it's part of that cloud of witnesses, you know, mm. that, that, mm. that have been a part of my life. So I've, I've been thinking a bit about that. I mean, it's probably not strange to be uh, melancholic these days, but I've been particularly that way in the last week. Mm. Mm. I love the way you're talking about discipleship as being so relational <laughs> and, you know, and that fits for, with your Franciscan heart too, if I, if I may say so. <laughs> well, it has been very, it's been very relational for me. Yeah. And, and there's no reason to, to name names in this because, you know, it's personal to me, but mm -hmm. um, their, their faces are in my mind as I'm talking. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I, I think a, f a couple of their faces are on the wall behind me, but no one's mm -hmm. going to see that because this is only audio for your listeners. But um, they are a part of my, mm -hmm. they're a part of my life uh, in an ongoing way, whether they're still on this planet or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks be to God for them and the cloud of witnesses. Yeah. So John Sweeney, what's messy for you about living a life of faith? Oh, golly. What's not messy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, I think you could better say, what, what do you have great clarity about? <laughs> you know, one of the things that I do when I give a talk, uh, which of course I don't really do anymore because um, I instead I just stay in my house all day. You're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I always love to do at the beginning when I give a talk, so, I mean sometimes you know you're introduced and uh, the person who's introducing you is like looking at your Wikipedia page or a, or a biography on a book or something, mm -hmm. and whenever you read one of those things about me, um, I I can't I can't help but imagine that some people are chuckling as they listen to it because it, I sound a little scattered. Um, <laughs> uh, some of that has come out in this podcast, I'm sure, uh, but also just sort of the range of things that interests me is really wide and varied, and um, that also seems a little scattered. I mean, I, you know, I'm not someone who uh, has taught at the same place for 25 years and written, mm -hmm. you know, three books all on the same subject, and you know. Uh, I'm all over the place and, mm -hmm. and my life is kind of all over the place. Um, I think my heart is kind of in the same place all the time, but, mm -hmm. but everything else is, is all over the place. And so sometimes anyway, when I give a talk, I will begin the talk by doing like a two or three minute introduction about this is who I am. This is kind of why I'm here. This is where I come from. And I deliberately make it honest to the point of uh, showing kind of that scatteredness or that varied, uh, sometimes uh, perceived as strange background that I have. And I do that on purpose because afterwards, invariably, I have two or three people who come up to me afterwards and they say, I am so glad that you said that thing about, you know, X or that's, I'm so glad you referred to that way in which you are Y because I am just that way. And I often think that I am the only one who is scattered and messy uh, and don't always understand what it is that I'm supposed to do next, or don't clearly understand what my identity is yet. Mm. Um, and I love having those conversations because I sometimes feel like that's part of my 
my vocation in the world is to tell people that messiness is normal. So uh, Amen. <laughs> I think that messiness is really normal. <laughs> right? And healthy. <laughs> Absolutely healthy. I, mean, I am so much more worried about the people who think that there aren't messes or who all they yeah. want to do is clean up the messes and live in a clean, unmessied place. Yeah. Uh, I am so much more comfortable and uh, frankly confident among the messy. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> and thank you, John, for coming on the show and for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and, and story with, with us. My pleasure. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. This is a prayer for the canonization of Nicholas Black Elk. Grandfather, great spirit, behold us who stand before you singing our song of thanksgiving for your beloved servant, Nicholas Black Elk. Faithfully, he walked the sacred red road and generously witnessed the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ among the native people. Grandfather, we humbly ask you to hear the prayers we plead through his intercession. We ask Holy Mother Church to recognize his sanctity by acknowledging his presence among the company of saints and as one to imitate in his zeal for the gospel. Open our hearts to also recognize the risen Christ in other cultures and peoples to the glory and honor of God the Father. Amen. That's another episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh, with assistance from Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please do a few things? Share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, and leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could support us on Patreon. Thanks! Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.